The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone. Happy New Year and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Rublin, Senior Managing Editor of Barron's. I am thrilled to be back on the line with Josh Nathan Cases, Barron's healthcare reporter. We'll be talking today about the latest COVID trends, Alzheimer's treatments, healthcare M&A, and more. We've also got a great batch of listener questions from registrants, and we invite the rest of you to add your questions to the chat space as we talk. So with that, Happy New Year, Josh. It was good to see you in the office yesterday, and thank you for joining me today. Yeah, great to see you too. Happy New Year. Hope all's well. All is well, thank you. So it's a new year, but we are still dealing with an old problem, and that is COVID. I want to start the call today with a look at some recent COVID statistics. Where are we with this virus? Where are we going? What's the latest? Sure. Well, if I could tell you where we were going, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but, but, you know, look, I I think the situation, uh, the the general understanding right now, uh, in in my understanding, is that the situation is not, you know, quite as dire as it looked in mid-December. You know, I should say with everything we're about to say, um, there's often reporting delays around the holidays. So that that I I think should be an important caveat to the conversation. You know, what we know uh, may not be as clear a picture as we have at other points in the year. Right now, you know, cases are down 10% over the last two weeks, but it's very hard to know what that means. I think more relevant is hospitalizations, which are up about 8% over the last two weeks. You know, just to put that in context, we're averaging about 44,000 people hospitalized in the U.S. on a given day. That number was about 33,000 at the start of December, 40,000 on December 15th. Um, But some of the rate of increase we've seen seems to be slowing a little bit. Um, I will say there's another figure that, that's tracked test positivity. That's the you know proportion of tests that are positive, uh, of um, PCR tests that are positive. And those are up 25% over the last two weeks. Not sure what to make of that. Doesn't seem great. Um, but that's right only about, people reporting test results. Sure. But, yeah. But well, you're, you're just sort of assuming that here. you're sort of assuming that it, um, I mean, that's the case for the case case count, too. I think you're assuming sort of a, the same sorts of tests are reported in terms of whether they're positive or negative. So you're just sort of tracking based on that baseline. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I think I think taking all these things together, what we can say is that cases do seem to be increasing. Uh, and we'll get to like one compelling reason why in a moment, but um, may, maybe not quite as dire or as concerning a situation as a couple of weeks ago. But um, things seem to be changing quite quickly. Um, I will say, you know, about 9% of, of counties in the U.S. are at a high community level, which is the CDC de- designation at which they recommend indoor masking for everybody. So um, uh, that's that's about where we are. Not a lot, but too much anyway. So my head is spinning with the names of new COVID variants, and I know that's a big part of the picture today. This is further proof of the virus's impetus to survive. Tell me which variants are predominant now and I guess we all wonder whether the latest vaccines will protect will protect us from the newest variants. 
Yeah, and you know, this has gotten, I think, very hard for lay people like us to keep track of. Um, there's just this forest of Omicron descendants, as you say. Um, I mean, you know, as people may recall, the, the dominant variant from the late summer through the fall in the U.S. was BA5, and that's the version that uh, the current updated COVID vaccines were designed specifically to protect against. There's been a shift in November and December through these other variants, um, BQ 1.1 was when we talked about a lot. But in the last couple of weeks, there's been a real change. There's a bit, been a tremendous explosion in the U.S. of a variant that is called XBB.1.5. That's now accounting for about 40% of the cases in the U.S. A week before that, so that, that 40% figure comes from December 31st. A week before that, it was 20%. And a week before that, it was 10%. So the share is doubling each week and is rapidly outcompeting other variants. It, this this variant seems to have come out of New York uh, and spread across the Northeast. I, I mean, I, I don't think that there's any indication that it's worse in terms of, you know, um, hospitalization or anything like that. It's just um, ha seems to have, uh, you know, advantages in terms of, of, uh, of its competition versus a lot of the variants that have been dominant previously. Um, you know, it and it, this, this is quite a new variant. There's not a lot of research yet on this XBB.1.5, but there's a related variant um, that 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 are, you know, I mean, the, the main thing is that the monoclonal antibody treatments, most of which have been taken off the market already, um, or the FDA has pulled the EUAs, um, don't work against them. There was also a recent paper in uh, the journal Cell from some Columbia University scientists that found that XBB.1, a related variant, um, uh, was not so susceptible to the antibodies in the blood of people who had received the bivalent boosters. So that's that's not great. Hard to know what it means. Hard to know exactly the implications of XBB.1.5. Um, you know, there's been some speculation that that's why in the past couple of weeks, you know, in the more recent term, seems like things might be ticking up again. You know, I, I think we're, we're operating in an environment uh, of rapid change with, with not uh, perfect information, um, but... Uh, th this is, I think, this this particular variant seems to be something to watch. And it's prevalent in our neck of the woods. Wouldn't you know it? Yeah. So, er as everybody knows now, the Chinese government finally abandoned its zero COVID policy, which was hampering economic output. And I want to talk about China for a moment. The result has been a surge of infections. But how much do we really know about what's going on there? What do you hear from your sources? Yeah, well, I don't know about my sources, but you know, yesterday the World Health Organization accused China of underrepresenting the severity of its outbreak. I mean, I think it's pretty been pretty clear that that's been what's going on for you know since early December when they when they lifted the policy and just went from you know full lockdown to you know no breaks um, in a matter of you know in in, in in the you know snap of a finger, which is quite remarkable. Um, I, you know, so so the yesterday the World Health Organization, the Director General said, you know, that they're uh, underrepresenting the severity of the outbreak. They're also very interested in genomic data. They want to know, you know, what variants are circulating there. They've seen that now, and they say that the variants um, that are driving the surge in China have been circulating in other countries. So that um, eliminates a, a, a potential concern, right? That there yeah. are some variants that that are not being you know fully disclosed by um chinese uh, health authorities that might be driving that surge that could you know lead to surges in the rest of the world 
Um, I think that concern has been allayed, at least for the time being. The the EU or their health agency said this week that they don't expect <laughs> the China surge to have an impact on the COVID situation in the EU because both of you know higher immunity in the European Union population because the virus has been circulating freely in the in the European Union for years in a way that it hasn't in China, uh, and and also because of vaccination campaigns in, in the EU. Um, and also because variants in China that that appear to be dominant there now have already passed through and been replaced in, in Europe. Um, now, as we know, people are asking the U.S. is requiring tests of travelers at this point and other countries are as well. Um, you know, I think the main the main issue now is just, the you know, level of mortality within China. I think implications for the rest of the world right now don't seem um, particularly dramatic as far as we can tell. It's a no-win situation for China, though. Yes. Um, no yes, question uh, about that. Really, so, really tough. Yeah. There's been a deluge of news in the U.S. healthcare market since we last spoke on Barron's Live about Alzheimer's drugs and the companies developing them, chiefly Biogen and Eastside. Some of the news has been disturbing, and you've covered it, and some of the news will be made this week at the FDA. Can you bring us up to date on the Alzheimer's situation? Yeah, so this is, you know, <laughs> as it has been for years, probably the most or one of the most important stories in biotech outside of COVID. Um, right now, what's happening on Friday is the FDA is deciding on whether to give accelerated approval to lecanemab. And this is sort of the, the next um, uh, Alzheimer's treatment from ISAI, which is a Japanese company that's partner, partnered with Biogen, after Agihelm, which was their previous drug. The complicating situation is that last week, you know, in, 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 the, in the final week of uh, the previous Congress, two House committees put out a staff report they've been working on for a long time on the FDA's decision on Agihelm. And as people will remember, extraordinarily controversial, the FDA, uh, Biogen had asked for full approval of Agihelm. Uh, the FDA granted accelerated approval despite their um, outside advisory committee advising against it. Uh, Agihelm made it onto the market at a very high price, and then uh, Medicare said it wasn't going to pay for it, and now that drug is effectively, um, you know, dead as a commercial prospect. Um, anyway, the, the House report said that the FDA's some of the FDA's actions in, in, in the process of approving Agihelm were inappropriate. They said it was inappropriate for the FDA to collaborate on Biogen with Biogen on this briefing document. I mean, we, maybe we don't need to tell that whole story, but it was eye-popping when it happened. And, uh, um, you know, th th this was not like, uh, at least for me, you know, I think reading this report and when what this, the, um, the, the committee said or the, the set committee staff said, it wasn't so much that they were saying things that we didn't know, but sort of putting an official imprimatur on what lots of people have been saying, which was this is quite an unusual and potentially inappropriate thing that the FDA did in, in the way it handled it. Is, is there it. any explanation for why? Uh, I mean, there's lots of there, there, there are. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, look, I mean, I think we can. I, I think as we as we've said, you know, this is a very challenging situation in that there is a tremendous need, and there are lots of desperate people who want something, and there's a huge uh, amount of pressure and and desire to to get something for these people, and that's what the FDA is trying to balance. Um, you know, making sure that what that that the risk benefit for what is approved and also the the value of, of what is approved you know matches uh, is appropriate but also you know meeting what is undoubtedly one of the most important unmet needs in the U.S. right now in terms of um, you know a, a treatment. Um, 
So, you know, I, I should say another big piece of the criticism from the, the report and the House staff report was um, on Biogen's initial decision to price Alja Helm at $56,000 a year. You know, they're not the first to criticize that. Uh, Biogen said in a statement that it stood by the integrity of its actions. But, you know, now the FDA in, I mean, tom by tomorrow is, is meant to decide on accelerated approval of another similar Biogen drug, you know, just a week after getting this report. You know, it's important to say this is a very different situation. You know, controversially, it was the FDA that decided to use the accelerated approval pathway for Adjahelm. ISI asked for accelerated approval for lecanemab. You know, accelerated approval is this program that exists. It's usually used for cancer drugs, um, and it allows you to, you know, ask for approval and potentially get approval if the clinical benefit of your drug is not yet proven, but you sort of see biomarkers that suggest that it works. So, you know, if you can establish that um, there's some measurement you can take of, of, a, of a change in a person's body that would show that they will <laughs> experience clinical benefit and you can show that the drug, you know, achieves that change, uh, you know, that you could bring that, that evidence to the FDA and the FDA can say, yes, you know, we will approve this, but you have to do a follow-up study. That's the arrangement. Um, so and, what's the difference? Uh, what's the relationship between Biogen and Isai before we go on? Sure, they they're partnered on a number of programs. Um, basically, uh, Biogen took the developmental regulatory lead on Agilhelm, um, and Isai you know gets a share of the profits. And in this case, it's the opposite. Isai developed and is you know leading the regulatory process for Lecanemab. They have a, a profit split. I, I, don't, I don't recall the details, but it's. I think it's it's pretty much up and down um, when it comes to when it if Got the it. drug is approved. All um, right, so, what's the expectation for tomorrow? You're, you're going to be busy. That's yeah, yeah. What's, what's the expectation for the FDA's decision? Um, I, at this point, it appears that the market very much expects uh, the FDA to grant accelerated approval to lecanemab. Uh, Jeffrey's analyst, Michael Yee, put something out yesterday saying he puts the odds of that at 70 to 75%. He doesn't think the stock will rise much if that happens. He says it's, it's pretty much baked in. Um, now, That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. He, he's talking about Biogen in particular. He, he doesn't cover ISI. Um, he says there's a chance it could, it could get approved with a black box, black box warning. And you know that's, that's part of this conversation is that um, there are safety concerns about lecanemab acknowledged by the company um you know the company says that um the risk benefit is you know works um there was actually a, a report published yesterday in the new england journal of medicine on, on a woman who died after taking lecanemab um and uh and so there there, there is a uh, you know one, i think one question is how the fda is going to deal with this potential risk and also you know how it'll impact whether um and the extent to which doctors want to um, give this drug to patients. Um, so, so, so Michael, you says that he expects Biogen shares to raise, to climb like 2% if lecanemab gets approved. Um, but if it doesn't get approved, uh, to fall 10%, um, you know, Biogen shares are trading around $270 now, as people may recall, they were around $400 shortly after the Agilhelm approval in June of 2021. But they've fallen since. And they sort of bottomed out at around two hundred dollars before the two hundred and five dollars, um, you know, before uh, lecanemab 
phase three data came came out. You know, we should say the other big difference between Agilehelm and Lecanemab is that Lecanemab has a very clearly positive phase three study that shows that it slows cognitive decline. Um, there are questions about how clinically significant that slowing will be, and there are questions about the safety risks. But you know, Biogen never never really had such a clear result um, from a phase three study of Agilehelm. Do you know if the drugs work on the same mechanism? It's it's uh, without getting too deep into the weeds. I mean, mm-hmm. the basic idea is that they're clearing the amyloid plaques that, you know, under one theory are tied to um, uh, Alzheimer's symptoms. Mm-hmm. Uh, the specific ways that they target um, those plaques are different. Mm-hmm. And do analysts consider Biogen a buy at the moment, or are they neutral for the most part? You know, I. I, I Biogen is in a unusual and, and tricky situation. You know, aside from from Alzheimer's, the they, they have this broader problem of a number of their important franchises, including their uh, their MS franchise. Um, you know, facing a lot of competition, patents running out. Uh, you know, a lot of lot of issues up and down the product line. Um, they have a new CEO who I think just started uh, just a couple of months ago. Um, so I, I actually don't know what the, the sort of consensus is, uh, right now, but, um, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's a company in, in transition. It's an interesting situation for sure. So next week, Josh, after you finish with, with the, um, FDA news next week is a big one for healthcare companies and analysts and investors and healthcare reporters. It's the annual JP Morgan healthcare conference in San Francisco. This is the first time the conference will convene in person since COVID, really, since 2020. I understand you're flying out to the Bay Area and you've got meetings scheduled with a batch of industry movers and shakers. What are the key themes of this conference? What will attendees be discussing? And what do you think investors should be listening for? Well, one one key theme is the rain. Uh, uh, enormously uh, 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 damaging storms in San Francisco right now, <laughs> and uh, they're expected to continue. So that that might put a little bit of a damper on 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 uh, the meetings. <laughs> um, I mean, look, uh, uh, you know, often people wait and uh, look for M and A um, on the, the the Monday of um, of 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 uh, of JPM of, of this conference and this is conference been going on for 40 years and uh especially in recent years it's been a time when companies choose to announce um you know big big deals and you know the absence of those deals is often taken as a bellwether rightly or wrongly for um you know the what what, what for for M&A prospects for the coming year so that's always a big conversation I'm not sure that expectations are particularly high right now, given given the broader market environment, given what's been going on with biotech. But um, I think that you know that that is all that's always a big focus, especially you know the first couple of days of the conference. Okay, so I hope you have a good time, and I hope you come back with lots of good stories. But yes. speaking of M and A, Moderna just made its first acquisition, which I think is noteworthy. Tell us what the company bought, what it means for Moderna, and whether it will have any impact on the company's stock. Yeah, this is an interesting little deal. You know, uh, both Moderna and Pfizer, you know, came through the COVID experience with the tremendous windfalls of cash, and whereas Pfizer has been, you know, pretty active in M and A, Moderna has not. And you know, when you talk to their CEO about it, uh, Stefan Vancell. He says that 
they are banking and gambling on their own pipeline and you know they're they're open to deals but they're not going to do deals just to do deals uh, they actually did a bunch of buybacks um uh, uh i guess last year um, which is what some people want pfizer too uh yeah well yeah i mean different different strategies different approaches and different right. problems you know pfizer has this has this uh, uh patent cliff approaching by 2030 that they really need to deal with um, you know, Moderna is really just trying to expand beyond the COVID vaccine. And they have, as, as we've as we've said before, a ton of phase three trials ongoing, a ton of other phase two and, and early stage stuff. Um, so they, they, they've generally said they're going to focus on that. And when they do M&A, it's going to be either, you know, relevant to their you know programs, relevant to their focus or tools to help with their programs. And that's what they've done here. They've Spent eighty-five million dollars on a private Japanese biotech firm called Orisiro, um, and they they use they make tools to make basically ingredients for mRNA medicines. Um, the, the the traditional way of making these ingredients is plasmids, a sort of key ingredient involves like uh, you have to grow them in a E. coli cell, and it's a challenging and time-consuming process. Apparently. Orisiro has a technology that allows you to do it to do it not using a cell, and that's apparently better. Um, it, it just shows that they're you know still focused on their pipeline in terms of capital allocation and uh, maybe a bit of a benchmark in terms of their their first M and A. Um, also notable that they you know this is a Cambridge company. Their first deal is in Japan. Kind of shows the I think the the breadth and 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 depth of <laughs> the work that the business development team is doing, even if they're not doing many acquisitions. Yeah, very, very interesting. Something to watch. Do you think it's too small to move the needle on the stock at this point? Yeah, this is this seems like a pretty, yes. pretty small. And, you know, unless people, unless investors are wondering, like, oh, are they changing their M&A strategy or something? But, yeah, it's not, very, like that. It's not a product, it's a tool. Yeah. All right. We are getting a bunch of questions about various healthcare sectors and, and their performance and investor psychology about the business. So I thought we'd begin by looking at exactly how various parts of the healthcare complex performed last year, that is how the stocks performed. Can you give us a rundown of performance of different sectors, ETFs perhaps, and indexes? Yeah. I mean, the, the basic story is that nothing did great except for big pharma. So, uh, you know, the S&P dropped almost 20% in 2022. Um, the uh, XBI, which is the SPDR, S&P Biotech ETF, um, uh, focused more on small mid-cap part of the sector, fell 25%. There's a, a medical devices ETF, the IHI, that fell 20%. The IBB, which is a larger cap-focused biotech ETF, um, dropped 14%. But the S&P 500 Pharmaceuticals Industry Group was up 6%. So, okay, uh, that so is that, remarkable. That was the whole story, yeah. And, you so, know, I, I think the, the reason I think we've talked about before and is pretty clear that, you know, these these big pharma companies are were, for many investors, an attractive, you know, quote-unquote defensive play. Um, you know, they, they, they generally or often have decent dividends, um, and they are generally seen as not correlated to, say, consumer spending or other things going on in the markets that that uh, people were anxious about and they have a lot of cash too yeah right there's no no in, in, in the these aren't biotechs that these aren't biotechs that like might need to raise money or something um you know they have revenues 
Yeah, that's really interesting considering, as you say, that the broad market was down almost 20 percent. So yeah, I mean, the question is whether whether this yes. continues next year, whether these the notion that these are defensive stocks survives. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of enthusiasm for a lot a lot of. You know, I should say, if, if you break down the pharmaceutical sector, like uh, you know, the, the the big pharma, you know, it, some of the the best performers are companies like Eli Lilly, which um, you know, folks are really excited about their uh, obesity drug. Um, it's it's not it's not uh, it's not across the board that that they did great, but certainly, I mean, Lilly shares are up almost forty percent over the last twelve months, mm-hmm. um, and that's I think probably a big part of of that five percent increase. Right, right, because it is an index. But people tend to think of energy as the best performing sector last year. But let's not forget the big cap biotechs, excuse me, the big cap pharma companies. So Max asks whether you can comment on the evolution of investor psychology regarding the industry and um, how investors are looking at potential downward estimate revisions in 2023. Yeah, look, I think I think that's a a, a good question and a, you know, I, I wonder sort of how different it is from the broader market, right? I think, I think that these sorts of concerns that are beginning to catch up with, with healthcare, um, you know, others in other sectors have been dealing with. Um, and I, and I wonder if, if, you know, some of the, for example, we were talking about a moment ago, the difference between large cap pharma and, you know, the rest of the S and P or the rest of the, you know, mega cap, large cap stocks in the S and P might begin to erode, um, but, uh, you know, I, I'm, 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 I'm not sure. I think we're all waiting to hear the answer to this one. For sure. Okay. George wants to know which areas of healthcare you think will perform best in the coming year, ranging from equipment and devices to pharma, to biotech, to healthcare insurers like Humana and UNH. Do you have any thoughts on, um, you know, sector outperformance? Yeah, I think, I think this again, kind of like depends on what happens and, the broader economy, like in terms of biotech, uh, you know, um, you know, the, I think the expectation is that biotech is going to remain in 2023 as it was in 2022, a place where, you know, it's really a place for stock picking and, you know, you'll see some, some very big winners, but, uh, you know, not a huge expectation that the sector is going to, you know, come back, uh, from, from some of the, the, the damage that was done, um, this past year. And I, I think that, you know, as we just said, this question of whether pharma is going to remain a, um, you know, defensive bastion is, is a big one. Um, but uh, that's the, that's the extent of my thoughts on that. And it depends, as you say, on what the broad market does. It depends whether growth stocks come back into favor. And that's what biotech stocks are. It depends what the IPO market looks like at the moment. It's dead as a doornail. Right, right. I should I should have mentioned that. Yeah, and yeah. I, I should have also mentioned that in, in context of J.P. Morgan. You know, I think um, is, is the IPO market coming back is a very big question for these investors and 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 for the private biotechs um, that that are meeting. It could be that most of the gains in biotech come from M and A, but we'll see in the months ahead how things unfold. Um, David wants to know if you can talk about biotech companies that have positive phase three clinical trials or pending FDA approvals, anything besides the Alzheimer's complex? You know, I was just, uh, I saw this question come in before. This company called Royvant um, that had some very positive data yesterday, or I believe it was yesterday in uh, phase two B. So I don't know if that quite 
clears the bar for you. Uh, no, with phase no, three not like phase three. <laughs> we'll uh, the, the, the drug's called RVT3101. It's an ulcerative colitis drug. Um, you know, there's lots of competition there, but uh, this drug seems to have done quite well in its trial, and the stock, I believe, is up about 5% today. Um, so that I think that's worth tracking. Interesting. Will wants to know whether you see COVID positively or negatively impacting health insurance companies in 2023. Yeah, I mean, you know, barring a, a huge wave, I think it's hard to see a massive impact. I think these, um, I, I, I think these are these costs are probably built into the MLRs. You know, I, I, I people uh, look. It's it goes to the same question from uh, that we had in the beginning. Like, obviously, we can't predict the future or the course of this pandemic. It's proven very hard, but if um, if the course of the pandemic, you know, six expectations, I don't see it having a huge impact on insurance this year. Can you tell me what some of the trends are that are driving the insurance stocks? Um, look, you know, uh, we, we talk a lot about uh, Medicare Advantage program, which is is something that a lot of these companies are, are putting a lot of energy into. A lot of them, particularly CVS, took a big hit in their star ratings, which is... Uh, uh, a rating system that CMS does for Medicare Advantage plans. Um, and it, it has, it, it correlates to bonuses they get and, and enrollment. It's a pretty big deal. Uh, you know, it's something that CVS is struggling to come back from. Um, you know, that's, 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 that's was a big theme towards the end of last year. Um, and I imagine, you know, continued moves towards Medicare Advantage and, and towards these sort of value-based arrangements is, is the theme um, mm. for much, much of those, you know, combined uh, healthcare services companies um, this year. Worth exploring further, certainly. So we had a question from Stephen on healthcare companies with sustainable and increasing dividends, and those would be big cap companies. So perhaps you can talk about those a little bit more. Yeah, we did a stock screen like uh, two or three weeks ago where we looked at stocks trading, you know, well below the mean analyst target price that also have decent dividends. I, if I recall correctly, the names came up. We're, you know, expected uh, Pfizer, Bristol, Johnson & Johnson, also CVS, um, which, uh, as I alluded to a moment ago, we wrote about recently, and they we, we wrote a positive um, stock story on, on them um, with some wrinkles, but, you know, maybe worth reading the piece in full to see the full argument. Mm -hmm. uh, Medtronic also, uh, and, and Viatris, uh, which... Has had a tough time, although analysts seem to like it again. Judith wants to know whether you have any thoughts about GlaxoSmithKline. Um, yeah, well, you know, they they spun off um, Halion earlier this year. Um, they uh, they're headed towards a big um, showdown with Pfizer over RSV vaccines, which is going to be a really big uh, story this year. We're getting our first. RSV vaccines for older adults and uh, Pfizer and Glaxo are likely to go head to head. And that's, that's, a, that's pretty big. Um, that's, that's the main thing I, that I was, that I've been thinking about in terms of uh, Glaxo over the past uh, couple of weeks. Okay. Good to know. Mark wants to know if you have any update on MRNA or other U S vaccines being used in China. I haven't seen anything, anything on this in the last few weeks. I mean, last, last we wrote about it last I checked, um, uh, you know, the, the Western mRNA vaccines are generally not going to be used in mainland China, although there's a few exceptions um, for foreigners, I believe, uh, and, and also um, I believe in 
you know, I, 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 I haven't, I haven't looked at this in a while, so I should, I shouldn't say. Okay. Definitely something to look at and <laughs> somebody will at some point. And we'll close with a question from Douglas. Is there anything new on the Horizon Therapeutics acquisition by Amgen? Uh, not that I know of, but <laughs> okay. I, I, I thought that they, uh, I, are you just, he's just asking if it's closed or not. I, I mean, it, it was uh, announced the question a few gets weeks no ago. more specific than anything. Okay. Else. Yeah. All, all I know is that they announced it uh, a couple of weeks ago, but I, I don't think that, um, Nothing I, haven't heard anything. I haven't heard anything in the last couple of weeks. What is your own take on healthcare M&A? Do you think it's going to be a big year for M&A? And you know, last year I, I said many times that it was going to be <laughs> at the end of uh, uh, 2021, early 2022, I believe I wrote in multiple articles that it was going to be just a huge year for healthcare and M&A. And it, uh, you know, it picked up towards the end of the year, but it took its time. So I feel like predictions are uh, with regard to M&A are always a mistake, as I've learned. <laughs> and uh, so I won't be making any, but uh, I will say that as, as you know, I think the stock answer here is, is, a, is the correct one. It sort of depends on what's going on in the rest of the market. But, you know, there are companies like Pfizer that are out there that have definitely said they're interested. So. All right. I don't dare ask you what you think it will go on in the rest of the market because nobody knows. <laughs> All right. With that, Josh, we'll, we'll call it a day. Thank you so much for joining me. It's a great way to kick off the year. Yep. Great talking to you. Thanks to our listeners as well. And thanks for your terrific questions. Tomorrow on Barron's Live, reporters at Mansion Global will discuss the outlook for luxury real estate across major markets and major design and technology trends to expect in high-end housing in 2023. Thanks again, everybody, for listening. Stay well and have a good day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.